Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 3 this morning as we continue through our exposition of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. I'm just going to read this passage before we dive into it. And you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience among whom we all also formerly conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to this passage, we are presented with clear and profound and serious and sober truths concerning the state of mankind, concerning our state before you rescued us from our sin. Lord, you know all things and you know us more than we will ever know ourselves. And we are often self-deceived, self-deceived concerning ourselves, concerning the world, concerning the nature of mankind, concerning you. And so apart from your word, we would not know anything. We could not be sure of anything. So Lord, as we come to this passage, instruct us, help us, guide us. And I pray especially for me that you would guide me that I would not uh, divert from your word or from your truth and um, would not lead your people astray, but that you would speak through me for their benefit and for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Most of you have know, know and have heard this explanation of the uniqueness of Christianity, or um, rather, biblical Christianity, in comparison to all other worldviews. You've heard this saying, I've said it, I've repeated it from other pastors who have repeated it from other pastors, and some of you have even said this in your own evangelism, that there's really only two religions in the world. It's really only two religions. We, we see multiple religions, but at, at their foundation, at their core... At the fundamental beliefs, there's, there's really only two religions in the world. That of human merit or human works, works-based systems, and that of divine grace or biblical Christianity. That uh, you look at all other ideologies, worldviews, and, and even those that, that may... Um, not be so much theistic or, or they're pantheistic or they're polytheistic, meaning that um, there's different concepts of God or gods or whatever the case may be, but almost all of them outside of biblical Christianity offer to mankind this system of works or, or merit by which they can either ascend to another plane or level of spirituality or knowledge or enlightenment or nirvana or a, a system of merit and works by which they can, in a sense, balance the scales of um, of atoning for the bad things they've done and, and putting in the other scale the good things and they can weigh out the scales, balance the scales, so to speak, or, or can, in a sense, uh, uh, work their way up towards God or appease a God or multiple gods. But the scripture says that man is lost in his sinfulness. 
that, that man is broken and the world is broken and the world is fallen and there's this concept of original sin and, and sin that that has flown uh, flows throughout the whole human race and and overflows into creation so that the whole creation is cursed because of man's sin and so if if this situation concerning man's sinfulness and and the sinfulness of the this world if this situation is going to be rectified it must be God that initiates that uh, reconciliation or, or rectifying the the lost condition of man and the the fallen condition and uh, of mankind and the corruption of this world and we know that in several passages of scripture uh, that um, were told and time and time again as by God's grace that we are saved it is God that um, has uh, initiates the work of salvation that salvation is of the Lord well it's true that there's only really two religions in the world of human merit and divine grace but from a negative perspective uh, the same is true that only biblical Christianity asserts this doctrine and grave reality of the total depravity of mankind or original sin or sinfulness that that um, we under the umbrella of Christianity there are several churches and some churches or denominations that were once uh, faithful that have gone astray but there are also those uh, apostate churches such as the Roman Catholic Church or uh, uh, heretical groups or, or, or cults such as the Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses that would uh, assert um, that they believe in the Bible and they affirm much of the Bible but yet they skew the Bible they skew salvation and it goes back to this concept this doctrine this reality of the total depravity of mankind or the sinfulness of mankind and as I've said before, and, and many others have said, and you've heard, uh, probably heard some evangelists say this, that we need to hear and understand the bad news of man's condition apart from God before we hear and understand the good news of how sinful people can be reconciled to a holy God. And, and that's why we say, and, and it's quite literally true, that the gospel is good news. Uh, literally speaking, that word, euangelion, means a uh, good message good news but before you understand how good the good news is you need to understand how bad we are is uh, you know one famous evangelist um, uses this analogy um, oftentimes in um, evangelism in witnessing to people that if you uh, explain to say a person on a plane that they, they need to strap on a parachute and the plane's flying you know nicely and there's no wrong there's nothing wrong you know they, they might listen to you but they, they might question why if everything's going well and, and, and there's no need for that parachute but as they begin to uh, he, he begins to unfold this this scene that that the plane is actually going down and it's going to crash and, and you need this parachute and if you don't have this parachute you will not survive that it, it kind of makes a little bit more sense and and he he uses that illustration many others um, have used illustrations such as the same to uh, explain the this this sense of bad news before they get to the good news because if you just say, uh, you know, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life, most that's great, wonderful. Now I'll just go on living my life how I see fit. But we need to understand the bad news first before we get to the good news. And in this letter, as Paul has been, in a sense, uh, uh, describing to the Ephesians and other uh, believers in the area and other churches and, and, and uh, other churches and believers since that time, 
of the nature of church, uh, of the church, and, and the establishment of the church through the salvation of sinners. And he begins this letter as we have gone through over the past few weeks uh, of chapter one, and the, the great glories and, and wonders of redemption, and, and how each member of the Trinity works in salvation in this high and lofty section of praise in chapter one. And, and he's speaking of uh, just. Uh, redemption in general, and then he, and, and how it, it works out with the relationship of each member of the Trinity and then mankind that we're all in Christ. And last week we looked at, at uh, the lordship and, uh, and the authority and the headship of Christ over his body, the church. And now it's as if Paul descends down into the depths of human sinfulness and total depravity and explains to us, those of us that are in Christ, that are in the church, of who we were before Christ, of what we were, of the type of people that we were, and the type of people that we were in relationship to God and to the rest of this world and to the enemy of God. And as the Apostle Paul begins to detail our condition before salvation here in these few verses, he shows us uh, uh, three primary characteristics of um, our lost condition or of the unconverted in the world. And, and these, these uh, characteristics, which in a sense ought to humble those of us who are in Christ and drive us to grateful praise to God for His grace in saving us, which He will go on to uh, elaborate on uh, later in this chapter and later in this letter. But as He lays out these characteristics of the unconverted, of the lost, of those who are outside of Christ, it should also sober us and compel us to have pity on and show mercy to the lost. Because that is what those of us who are in Christ once were. And if you're honest with yourselves, you can see that. And so as he paints this picture of the total depravity of mankind, of the lost condition of the unconverted, of unbelievers, he shows us three things concerning unbelievers, is concerning the unconverted. First, that they are spiritually dead. Second, that they are satanically directed. And third, that they are sinfully disposed. First, as he clearly says, they are spiritually dead. As he says this in, in verse 1 of chapter 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You, speaking to the church, speaking to the Ephesians, speaking to, uh, in a sense, uh, Gentile believers, you were dead. And he proves this spiritual deadness in three lines of evidence as he goes through. Just right here, packed in this, in this first verse of chapter 2, you were dead. Dead. What does it mean to be dead? That There's no life in you. They are spiritually lifeless, so to speak. That's, that's the concept of deadness, is that there is no life. And, and this is what Scripture would also paint uh, in, in graphic terms in different passages. One such passage, and, and uh, many commentators have, have uh, suggested that um, Ephesians is somewhat of an abbreviated form of uh, other, um, other writings of Paul, specifically Romans. As in, in his letter to the Romans, he unfolds uh, salvation uh, beginning with uh, the sinfulness of mankind in great detail in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and, and shows in Romans chapter uh, 3 just the, the, the depth of our sinfulness. And then he continues on with, as he unfolds uh, uh, salvation and redemption, and he gets to chapter 5, Romans chapter 5. And I'd like you to turn there and, and look at this. This is one of, the, one of those chapters in the, in the Bible and in Romans where he unfolds uh, just uh, the state of mankind, of who we were and, and what happened to the human race. 
And he says this, in a sense, a commentary on, on the creation narrative that we read in Genesis 2. He says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned, in the likeness of the trespass of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. Here we get this concept of federal headship, of Adam as the first human being, as the first man, is the federal head or the head of the whole human race. And because uh, he sinned, we, in a sense, being in him, that uh, we all come from Adam, we, in a sense, uh, as Scripture would say, sinned as well, or that sin spread from him to the whole human race because he is the head of the human race. And so because of that, there we are all sinful. We, even as David would say in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. And so sin spreads uh, through, from birth on. As uh, many have said before, you, you don't have to teach a toddler to sin. They do it naturally. It just comes. It, it's there. This is what... Uh, God was getting at when he told Adam in Genesis 2 that you should not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You, you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And he did not die physically. We know that clearly as we read on that Adam would continue to live hundreds of years. But he did die spiritually. He surely died. It was also the lie that Satan told Eve that you will not surely die. You will not die. No, they, he, he did die. And she died. And everyone else died in Adam, spiritually speaking. We are dead in our transgressions and sins outside of Christ. We are spiritually dead, lifeless, which means that we are unable and unwilling outside of God's work to come to God or to do anything of spiritual profit. Jesus alludes to this fact in several points in the Gospels as he's calling disciples to himself and, and people are coming and they, they want to follow him and they see there's something about him, but then there's a few that would have their objections or their excuses or just, hey, Jesus, I, I want to follow you and I want to go after you, but there's just this one more thing that I got to take care of. One such disciple, he had a, what seems to be, you know, somewhat of a legitimate excuse he says, Lord, in Matthew 8, 21, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Something, you know, significant, especially in that day and age, that you, you were uh, called to take care of your, your parents. And even that, that's according to the law, to honor your father and mother all throughout life. But Jesus says to him, follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. If I call you to eternal life and spiritual life and call you out of spiritual deadness, then there is, in a sense, a separation. And he would further uh, talk about this separation that in the Gospels that he will uh, divide a house, so to speak. You know, uh, husband and wife, uh, mother and daughter, father and son, uh, brother and sister. Because he would call some to spiritual life and others would remain in spiritual deadness. And there would be a stark contrast. This is what scripture uh, asserts and affirms. The, the sinfulness of mankind, a spiritual deadness. That, that we all come into this world in a sin nature. And, and totally depraved. Not, not seeking God, not asking to... Uh, 
uh, for God to work in us. Uh, and, and even if we, we may say things that are spiritual and religious, it, it's, it's for wrong motives, selfish motives, self-righteousness to appear spiritual and religious and, and that we honor God. Unless God does a work in our hearts and minds, we remain dead in our transgressions and sins, which Paul says right here. It's clear, you were dead. Or as uh, you know, one uh, pastor has often said, and others have repeated him, what, what can a dead man do? He can stink. He can you know, decay. That's it. And, and nothing on his own. It's just naturally. Naturally, as a result of being dead, he decays. And so as Paul paints this picture of the unconverted uh, person outside of Christ, that he says they are spiritually dead, it's because they are spiritually lifeless. It is, in a sense, the, 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 the opposite or, or the other side of the coin. If you're spiritually dead, that means you don't have spiritual life in you. But also he says that they were dead in their transgressions and sins. They, they, they break God's law. They, they transgress. And they transgress in a few different ways. They, they transgress unknowingly and yet intuitively. That as Paul would say in Romans chapter 2, that God has written his law upon our hearts. And so there's a sense of morality within every human being. And yet we intuitively sin, as I gave that illustration of the toddler or the uh, young child, that they intuitively and naturally sin with, without even knowing the law. This is what, in a sense, uh, Paul says uh, concerning his own testimony. Uh, I, I would not know not to covet had the law not said, don't covet. And just naturally you know, some of those uh, other uh, clear uh, laws like do not murder or do not steal or do not lie, that uh, those laws, those, that sense of moral law is in almost every culture and every religion. Where the Bible says you shall not covet what is not yours. That's not yours. And yet all of us do that. But the unconverted person... Uh, they break God's law, they transgress God's law knowingly, and not, not just unknowingly and intuitively, but knowingly and expediently. That, that, that sometimes we, we don't want to, in a sense, uh, sin or be immoral, but um, it's the expedient thing to do, such as those times in which um, it may be expedient or profitable for us to lie, such as in the workplace or in our careers or on our resumes or on um, how we present ourselves to others, maybe uh, on social media or maybe um, in our professional profile. Or maybe it's concerning a, a sale or a project in uh, the workplace. Now we know we shouldn't lie or we know we shouldn't um, act a certain way, yet we go ahead and do it. We go ahead and break God's law for the sake of um, promoting ourselves or preserving ourselves. But there's also a sense that people break God's law knowingly and yet gleefully or joyfully or pridefully. That... Uh, uh, People feel that surge of uh, joy and excitement and adventure in breaking God's law. I remember there was this instance uh, um, being in the National Guard, and it wasn't too long ago that, that um, we were on a training exercise, and, and I was in the, the back of a, a, a Humvee, and, and the driver, and... Um, the other uh, lieutenant with him, um, they were uh, taking care of their unit, and they had to go collect supplies, and me as a chaplain in the back, and just going around, and, and they go to this point where there's a drop-off where they are to collect supplies for their unit, and they realize that the, the person providing the logistics, they said, oh, hey, um, 
so-and-so, this other company, this other unit was late to pick up their supplies. And, and, so, and we've been calling them. They haven't come. And so you can have them. And one, one of those such things was a box of apples. And every unit got a box of apples. Well, this unit, they got two boxes of apples. And as we're driving away, they, they say, well, you know, one, rather than, uh, you know, we have more than enough to distribute to the troops. So, you know, I'm just going to take a few apples. You want an apple? And it's, it's just an apple. But as we're driving away and they start eating their apples and one guy says, you know, I like apples. But this apple really tastes good. It's like, and I don't know what, it just, you know, I really like, but this apple is good. And, and I, I'm just thinking, like, well, number one, there's a sermon illustration there. But number two, there's a reason why that apple tastes better than a normal apple, because that wasn't your apple. That's, in a sense, a stolen apple. And... and you know, that, that may seem like a slight sin or, or something that, that may even be borderline not sinful. But you can extend that to other more grievous sins. So it's in the sense that you see a, a, a married person that is somewhat has, you know, a good loving spouse and a good home life and, and, and maybe even have a, a spouse that's attractive, but they decide to go ahead and uh, sleep around or commit adultery with somebody else that may not even be as attractive or as pleasing as their own spouse, but there's a thrill there because they're breaking God's law and it provokes and incites the flesh. And so they knowingly and gleefully and pridefully break God's law. And we see this in our culture in several instances and in several types of sins that it's a thrill to sinners. This is what Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 1 as he goes to the end. And you can turn there and see this, that, that as Paul is in a sense giving the rap sheet of humanity, explaining this bad news about how sinful we are, how uh, depraved we are in our sinfulness. And he's explaining each and every sin and he gets towards the end. And in Romans 1.28 he says, And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them over to an unfit mind to do those things which are not proper. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the righteous requirement of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, and get this, they not only do the same, but they also give hearty approval to those who practice them. This is why we see, you know, in the percentage, the statistics are growing. But it wasn't long ago that you know, you look at demographics and statistics and you think uh, the, whole, the whole LGBTQ uh, uh, population of people who would identify somewhere in that spectrum was only a percent of the total population or less than a percent. And it is growing because there's approval for those types of sins. But you see in our culture, in our society, and even in our laws, why are they catering to such a small demographic of people? Because they sin as well, and they're giving hearty approval to those who sin. And it's not just in that, those particular sins, but many other types of sin. Of gluttony. Of greed of gossip, of slander, rudeness, the, even in those respectable sins that people naturally and intuitively break God's law. They, they transgress a clear law, a clear standard of morality. But not just that, they, 
miss God's standards. They, they sin. And, and there's a reason why Paul puts here in verse 1 that you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not just sins, but transgressions and sins. Because there's, there's a slight difference there. Transgression is meaning that you break a, a, a known standard or a law. It's, it's more of in the negative sense. The, the sense of sinning, the, this word um, literally, in a sense, means to miss the mark or uh, fail to meet the standard, to live up to a standard. Uh, uh, oftentimes in, in Greek, this, this term um, could have been used to, in, in a sense of in the context of hunting or archery in, in that they have missed the target or they miss a standard. They miss the mark. And we not only transgress God's law, unbelievers, unconverted, uh, they not only transgress God's law, either knowingly or unknowingly, but they fail to meet God's standard of righteousness. They fail to uphold it. This is why the Westminster uh, Larger Catechism, as the Westminster Divines had spent years and years uh, working on those documents concerning the confession and the catechisms, and, and they, they use this language, and yes, it's from the middle 1600s, and so it seems a, a little bit different from our language and is a little bit more loftier, but they are careful in their, this language as they, they offer up this question in the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 24, what is sin? Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. I'll say that again. Sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of any law of God given as a rule to the reasonable creature. And as I say, any want of, that, that they're using that, that term want in, in the Old English uh, aspect of it, a lack of conformity unto God's law. You, you fail to conform to God's law and you transgress God's law. Or as other theologians have put this sense of sin into the two categories, and, and I've said this as well, that we sin by, both by way of commission and omission. We commit sins and transgressions that uh, clearly break God's law. He says, thou shall not steal or thou shall not uh, commit adultery or thou shalt not murder and, and if we don't uh, commit the actual act we, we commit it in our hearts as Jesus would say in Matthew 5 we transgress, we break that law but furthermore we fail to uphold the positive laws such as you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength none of us does that and so we sin by way of commission and omission that's so why James says in James 4.17, Therefore, to one who knows to do the right thing and does not do it, to him it is sin. We don't really understand how sinful we really are. And it requires God's word, his scripture, his law to expose our hearts to, to be, as it were, that mirror in which we can rightly and correctly see ourselves. But we also not just sin by way of commission or omission. There is a sense that sinners sin by diminishing God's standard of righteousness so that they, in their self-righteousness, can work towards achieving a false standard that they have erected. We see this in many of the works-based religions. This is what the Jews did. They, in a sense, lowered God's standard so that they could feel as if they could meet it. And Jesus, uh, in, once again, Sermon on the Mountain, in many parts of the Gospels, uh, unfolds to them the spirit of law that shows that all are condemned, or as uh, Paul would say, the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ, that shows us how sinful we really are. I remember one hearing of one preacher who um, spoke about uh, 
this interaction he had with a man on a plane sitting next to him. And the man uh, uh, asked a couple questions, realized he was a minister, and, and asked him that, that question, which you know, we all would love to hear in, in evangelism, how do I get to heaven? And he, being uh, the wise and experienced evangelist, said, well, that's easy. You want to get to heaven? That's, that's simple. All you have to do is obey God's law perfectly from the time you're born until the time you die. And then he left them there. And sometimes we fail to do that. We're too hasty in our evangelism. We fail to expose the sinfulness of a, 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 an unbeliever's heart. That they are woefully inadequate to do anything to, uh, to commend themselves to God. This is, in a sense, what, what Jesus did in the Gospels. He said in one interaction, uh, uh, the, young, uh, the young ruler comes up to him and says, Good teacher, what must I do to, to enter into the kingdom of heaven? He says, Why do you call me good? No one was good but God alone. In another instance, he you know, has another uh, 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 scribe comes up, and, and as he's uh, interchanging with uh, the, the uh, Jews, and, and this person is almost trying to trap him, he says, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is a great and foremost commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. And they expose our sinfulness. Because there's no one that has done that. The unconverted person is dead in sins because death spread through Adam, because they transgress God's law by nature, and because they are unable and unwilling to meet God's standard of righteousness. This is what Paul is telling us when he says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And then the second characteristic of the unconverted person, as he explains our spiritual deadness, he says, second, the unconverted person, the unbelievers of the world, they are satanically directed. He says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which... You formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. They are satanically directed. We were satanically directed, which the Bible proves by the fact that unbelievers live according to what Satan directs, living according to the world system. This is the Bible paints this picture of the world and often speaks of the world and, and not so much in the, the physical, natural, elemental sense, but in the spiritual sense. This world system, which is designed to tempt and deceive and draw people away from God. This is why John says in 1 John 2, do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. It's the same as what James would also say, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Why? Because this world system is directed by the ruler of the world, by Satan himself, by the enemy of God. And it's designed to tempt and to deceive and to draw people away from God. It includes systems and structures and strongholds to enslave people. As Paul says to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 10, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the tearing down of strongholds. 
And what he's saying there, he's, he's giving us a picture into spiritual warfare, the spiritual warfare that he wages by the proclamation of the gospel. And as he proclaims the gospel and the word of God, he is, in a sense, using the word of God and the gospel to tear down these strongholds. What are the strongholds? The strongholds are every false religion and false ideology that stands against the word of God and against the kingdom of God. These strongholds that enslave people into false religion that is inspired by demons and Satan himself. Unbelievers are satanically directed in living according to the world system. But second, they are satanically directed in living according to the ruler of the world. As it clearly says in, in Ephesians 2, 2, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, the world system, according to the ruler of the power of the air, Satan himself, the deceiver, the father of lies, the enemy of God and his people. And Paul also explains this to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4, as he talks about his gospel and proclaiming his gospel and, and how it's not received by people, this, this supernatural blindness, that he is clearly proclaiming the gospel and clearly explaining it, and yet it, it bounces off of them. It says, even Jesus would say, the parable of soils, as seed that is snatched away. The evil one snatches it away, and he says this, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they, may not, they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They're blinded. They're blinded and they're deceived because they're living according to the world system and they're living according to the ruler of the world. Somewhat uh, unintentionally, uh, in their um, unaware, he's not only the deceiver and the father of lies and the enemy of God's people, though, he's a power behind every false religion, every ideology, and the nations themselves. That's why he was able to offer to Jesus in his temptation in the wilderness. He was, offer, he was able to offer him the, the kingdoms of the world. That was a legitimate offer. Because he's behind all of them. This world is, is corrupted in sin. And it, 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 it's a web of deceit and lies that traps people to and enslaves them to live according to this world system, according to the ruler of the world. Third, they are satanically directed in that they just live like everybody else. Everybody else that is enslaved. It says, uh, you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. All those who disobey God, who transgress God's law, who uh, don't uh, seek God, who don't know God, that are dead in their transgressions and sins, that are walking according to the course of this world, the ruler of the power of the world, the same spirit, just like everybody else. Just like everybody else. And then they affirm everybody else in their sinfulness as, as well. Even in, in, like I brought up that illustration of the LGBTQ uh, culture. And there's several people, many people in our world who do not partake in any of those sins. That doesn't, it doesn't appease them. They don't care about it. And yet they still affirm those who do. Well, what's wrong with it? You don't see what's wrong with it because you're blind and you've been blinded and you're enslaved to the ruler of this world and the world system. And so as Paul paints this bleak, dark picture of fallen humanity, he shows us that uh, unbelievers are spiritually dead, they are satanically directed, and third, they are sinfully disposed. Verse 3, among whom we all also formally conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, doing the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature 
children of wrath, even as the rest, even as the rest of them, sinfully disposed to live according to the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We're living according to our nature. Unbelievers, unconverted, those outside of Christ, they are sinfully disposed to live according to sinful lusts, to live according to whatever feels right in their fallen flesh. And in this sense of this lust of the flesh, this is strong desires. And oftentimes we hear this term lust, and it is right and true that oftentimes it's attributed to sexual immorality and the sexual lust. Anything that falls in that realm of outside of God's design for sexuality, anything outside of sex within the covenant of marriage is sinful. And he talks about this lust of the flesh. But it's more than that. It's not just the sexual sin that he's speaking to. But this term, this, uh, it means strong desire. And I think Paul gets a little bit more to it when he instructs Timothy to flee from youthful lusts. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And oftentimes that verse is taken as, as many verses are considering lust, it's taken to refer primarily to sexual lust. And certainly there is that indication there, there is somewhat, but it's broader than that. As he's speaking to Timothy, he's speaking about those strong desires that young people have, and even young ministers often have, the strong desire to have influence, to be liked, to be popular, to be affirmed. To be a man pleaser. He's saying flee from that. Flee from these youthful lusts and, and, and any lustful desire that a, a, a young person has. Yes, sexual immorality, but also that strong desire to be liked and to be affirmed and to be appeased and to have influence and power and money and, and a career and, and comfort and security and, and whatever it, it, it would be that your heart just longs after, that it just overwhelms your thoughts and your hearts and your minds. Think of this in, in uh, you know, young people, but it can happen to old people as well. In our day and age in which we have social media and, and who's my friend and who likes me and who liked this post and who said I'm just a great and wonderful and beautiful person and, and who did not. And, and there's many young people that are just enslaved to that because they lust after influence and affirmation and it's, it's a sinful lust. These are desires that are so overwhelming that, that they, you almost begin to identify with that. And, and then they become, they seem natural. The unconverted person, they're sinfully disposed to live according to sinful lusts. And second, they are sinfully disposed to act according to sinful desires. And so not only do we walk according to, or, or have we formerly walked according to the lust of our flesh, but we do the desires of the flesh and of the mind. We act out upon these sinful desires. Uh, and, and he puts these two categories of the flesh and of the mind. The sinful desires of the flesh. And once again, we're prone to just think primarily of sexual lust or, or sexual desires, but it's more than that. It is the, the, the desires of the flesh to pander to every fleshly impulse and indulge it. You have an itch, you scratch it. You know, you, you're, you, you feel like doing something, you just go ahead and do it, whether it's good or not. This is, could be gluttony or um, sloth or laziness or uh, any form of selfishness or... or pridefulness uh, and, and it's just pandering to every fleshly impulse and, and to just go ahead and indulge it rather than deny yourself or control your body and your flesh 
but not just the desires of the flesh, but the desires of the mind, which are closely linked and almost overlapping and interconnected. That we, the unconverted person not only does the desires of the flesh, but the desires of the mind as well. They, they scheme to fulfill every sinful thought and dream. As the Bible says that the, 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 the wicked man plots evil on his bed. Even before he wakes up. And, and some of us, if we're honest with ourselves, and, and we can remember in our lost condition those sinful dreams that we've had. Whether it was uh, dreams which... Uh, encompassed uh, uh, sexual immorality or lofty uh, uh, delusions of grandeur, <laughs> whatever it may be. These, these, this scheming, this dreaming, this fantasizing about carrying out all of these uh, sinful desires and then acting upon every self-centered and man-centered ideology, worldly wisdom, everything that that promotes uh, uh, this uh, pursuit of sinful desire. This is why worldly wisdom and, and man-centered sayings that we hear in our um, society and American church culture are so dangerous. They, they come into the church and, 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 and they're, they're sanctified with religious uh, lingo. Things such as God loves you just the way you are. Or which is, in a sense, the religious version of the worldly saying, you be you. Just go ahead, you be you. You know, you just, you know, you don't have to change. You don't have to deny yourself. Or you've got to follow your heart. You know, just follow what's in your heart. And, and these sayings, these things, they come into the church. You be you. No, you don't be you. You be like Christ. You know, there's a, there's a sense we need to be honest, we need to trans, be transparent, but we need to pursue Christ-likeness, not uh, just be okay with the old version of our sinful self. Jeremiah 79, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can know it? And yes, there is a sense that he is speaking of the unconverted heart, and there is a sense that as... Uh, with Ezekiel would say, and God speaking through Ezekiel, that God would take out that heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh that longs for God, and he puts his spirit within us in regeneration. Um, there's still a sense that our heart leads us astray, that we're not completely sanctified. We're not completely formed to, the, to Christ. There is one pastor has said, and, and many have said the after him and, and who knows where he got it from but the heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart that's the problem with mankind or as Jesus even would, uh, would elaborate upon the sinfulness of mankind and, and he, he confronts uh, the, the Pharisees in their self-righteousness and their external uh, religiosity and he says to him, Matthew 15, 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false witness, slanders. It's all within our heart. It's all within our being, in our flesh, in our, the sinful desires of the flesh and of the mind. Or as God said through Isaiah, and speaking of the sinfulness of his own people in Isaiah 1, in verse 4, he says this, Alas, sinful nation, people heavy with iniquity, seed of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have forsaken Yahweh. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel. They have become estranged from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it. Head, shoulders, knees, and toes, all throughout their being, sin flows. Completely sinful. This is the unconverted person. This is the 
unbeliever. This is those that are outside of Christ, that apart from Christ, unbelievers are sinfully disposed to live according to sinful lusts. They are sinfully disposed to act according to their sinful desires, and they are sinfully disposed to exist according to their nature. As Paul says, and we're by nature children of wrath. In their being, ontologically, a big word that just means who you are, deep down, in your being, apart from Christ, you're children of wrath. Or as he would tell the Jews, you are of your father, the devil. Children of the devil. This is why we get, we get even from the beginning, in the Genesis 3, in the, the, the Proto-Euangelion, our first gospel, this sense of the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Or even as David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. We, we, we come into this world children of the devil. Children of Satan. And this just uh, blows away this concept that we often hear, well, we're all God's children. No, we're not. We're not. That's why we need to be born again. That's why Jesus continues to say, you need to be born again. You need a new birth. You need a new creation. Because you come in this world as children of wrath, even as a rest, deserving God's wrath, just like everyone else. There's this uh, concept that, you know, uh, people believe that, you know, we're all sinners because we commit sin. It's not true. We sin because we're sinners. We act in accord with our nature. People behave according to their nature. This is why, why there's this, um, this illustration of, as Peter says, of a, a, a pig returning to um, the slop or a dog returning to its vomit because that's its nature. And it lives according to the na its nature. This is why sinners sin. Because they're sinners. They behave according to their nature. Which raises a question. What should the all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, and perfectly moral judge of all creation do with his creatures who have transgressed his law, who have failed to meet his standard, who live according to the world system, who live according to the ruler of the, this world, who are children of wrath by nature, and they rebel against him in their being naturally and uh, willingly, what should he do with them? Or as even Solomon says, fear God and keep his commandments for he will bring every act into judgment as jesus said he will judge you for every careless word he is a perfect judge and he must punish every sin and we being sinners by nature and volitionally and willingly we all come into this world under his wrath deserving his wrath and that's in a sense a good thing that God would pour out his wrath upon sinners that's what we deserve because he's good and he cannot sin he cannot lie he cannot do anything that is bad we are the ones that are bad almost all of us here are familiar with John 3:16 Many unbelievers are even familiar with John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And there's so much truth packed in there. But we fail to see the context first that what came before it in the fact that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and saying that uh, he needs to be born again to enter the kingdom, that the spirit blows or moves wherever he wishes. And it's the Spirit of God that has to enlighten a person, has to, in a sense, 
cause them to be born again, to be regenerated, to actually, so that they can actually believe in God and reach out to God. But there's an implication here in John 3.16 that whoever believes in him shall not perish. The implication that they are perishing and they deserve to perish unless they believe in him. But how will they believe in him? In whom they have not known. In whom they have not heard. Unless they hear and unless someone is sent. Unless God does a work. Because they are spiritually dead. We often stop at John 3.16 and we fail to read on. Or we fail to memorize on or remember what comes after we fail to remember what comes before in that the fact that sinners need to be born again. Unless you are born again, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's by the Holy Spirit. But John 3.17 says this, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. He who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. That the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. Everyone. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been done by God. If you believe in Christ, if you are a Christian, it's because God began that work in you. He started that work. He initiated that work. Or as Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Why? Because we're spiritually dead. We cannot reach out to him. We cannot believe in him. We cannot raise our hand and walk a hand, uh, an aisle and get our ticket punched, so to speak, on our own volition. We cannot accept Jesus into our heart unless the Holy Spirit first takes out that heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh so that that heart will believe on him and receive him because we're dead. Salvation is by grace alone from beginning to end, through faith alone in Christ alone. And, and there's a lot of bad news here in these few verses, but Paul gets into the good news in the next verse. And later on, as you just look down in Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not of yourselves. Why? Because you were spiritually dead. You couldn't do anything by yourself. It is the gift of God. It's God who saves, not of works so that no one may boast. And we get that clearly, that, well, well I could boast in a good work and, and, and commending myself to God, but we could also boast in a wise decision. Well, I made the decision. I accepted Christ, all right? You would not accept him. You would not believe upon him unless he first did a work in you and caused your dead heart and mind to come alive through the power of the Holy Spirit. But then that raises the objection. Well, then what, what can I do? What can I do? Or am I just a robot or, you know, it's just fatalistic that, you know, God's going to save who he's going to save. Yes, that's true. But you do what you're commanded to do if you're outside of Christ. You repent and believe. And if you have repented and have believed, as Jesus says, you've shown that God has done a work in you. And so there's this two hands, a human responsibility and God's sovereignty. These two concepts that are hard for some of us to reconcile. But we go back to the scripture. And the scripture says that we come into this world dead. In sin did my mother conceive me. We do not seek God, as Paul says in Romans 3. No one seeks after him. No one are righteous. No, not one. No one does good. 
but salvation is of the Lord. And because it's of the Lord, we praise the Lord. And we rejoice in the Lord. And we're thankful to the Lord. And we serve the Lord. And we proclaim this gospel to others with the confidence that He is going to do a work through the proclamation of the gospel and causing uh, dead people to come alive. And taking out hearts of stone and giving people hearts of flesh. Now, oftentimes there's this illustration of the jeweler that, as many jewelers do in selling diamonds, and we know diamonds are precious jewels and precious items, and we oftentimes, a young man and um, proposing to a young woman uh, gives a diamond ring, and, and oftentimes that young man does not have um, much money to buy a big diamond ring, so he buys a, what he can afford, and he buys a small one, and so what he can afford, and on its own, if you just bring that small diamond out, you don't really see its beauty and its sparkle and, and all its um, magnificence, but as a jeweler, the wise jeweler does, he, before he brings that diamond out to present to the young man, he lays down a piece of black velvet, that back, black, dark background. So we see that diamond more clearly. And this is what Paul is doing to the Ephesians and every reader of this letter ever since. And he paints this dark background of humanity so we can see the brightness and the magnificence of God's grace in the gospel. That he came to save sinners such as us. And in the end, he gets all the glory. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We ask that you would forgive us for, in a sense, stealing your glory in any way that we try to impart into your gospel human works or human wisdom or human merit or even in your word and, and how you clearly say how you save sinners such as us. From beginning to end, this is your work and that in the end, no one will boast in your sight. And so that we can see our own sinfulness and see your grace and we can uh, sing out and, and praise you as a uh, famous hymn writer John Newton wrote, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Lord, if there's anyone here who does not see or is who is blind, we pray that by the power of your Spirit you would open blind eyes, that they may see the glory of your gospel and your grace, and that they may reach out to you and, and come to you by the power of your Spirit, and that you would save them. And for those of us who are saved, that you would show us afresh the greatness of your salvation, of your gospel, that we were not seeking for you. We we're not reaching out for you. We were going our own way, and you interrupted us in our sinfulness and caused us to be born again and to turn and go your way. So, Lord, help us as we go from here to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called and to live according to your way and not our own. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.